You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. I'm Blake Smith, the host of Monster Talk. Today we have something appropriate for a cool fall evening. Can a domesticated cat be a monster? What if it could talk or fly or predict the future or grow to enormous size? Get ready for some of the strangest lore we've ever covered on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. In this episode, Dr. Karen Stolzno and I will be interviewing art historian Dr. Paul Kudnaris. Paul has written some books that will probably be of interest to Monster Talk listeners. The Empire of Death is a book about the history of charnel houses and ossuaries. And in his more recent book, Heavenly Bodies, you'll discover astonishing works of art formed by decoration of human remains. During the course of his research, he's become something of a expert on lore surrounding demon cats. And now the idea of a domesticated cat as a monster may give you pause, but I think you'll find that the stories in this interview are fascinating, and some of the tangents we take may astonish you. It's good stuff for a chill autumn night. Can you hear the leaves rustling in the night wind? Let's cozy up to the fire, grab a warm beverage, and have some monster talk. Dr. Paul Kudinaris has a PhD in art history and is the author of The Empire of Death, 
a study of religious sanctuaries decorated in human bone, and the book Heavenly Bodies, a study of 17th century decorated skeletons. He's written for a wide selection of magazines and newspapers, including several features for 40 and Times, and he can be reached at his website, Empire de la Mort, which we will link to in the show notes. But today, we're going to be talking about demon cats. So welcome to Monster Talk. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm pleased to be here, and I'm pleased to talk about that topic. So are we. I have to say, we've only covered uh, cats as, like, alien big cats, which, you know, which are misplaced large felines people see in different parts of the world. But uh, we haven't really done much on cats as uh, possessed entities. So yeah, This is new. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's really old, but very new for us, <laughs> right? So. Well, there's also a semantic difference I want to make from the start. There, there's a difference between calling a cat demonic and calling it demonically possessed. You know, something that is demonically possessed is a, is a normal entity that has been possessed by some kind of outside agency. Something that is demonic is is in it is the demon itself. We are talking about cats, normal cats that have been possessed. Okay. So, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, that's a real good question. You uh, and I got into it in the exact opposite way because I was very interested in kind of sacred or angelic cats at one point in time. Uh, you mentioned my book, Heavenly Bodies, which is a study of these uh, elaborately decorated and jeweled skeletons from the 17th and 18th centuries. And there's this fascinating story from Berglund, Switzerland, about this this skeleton that's still to this day this elaborate skeleton that's on the high altar of the church, and the people in the town used to think that it would leave the skeleton, it would leave its its niche in the form of this white ghostly cat. It would walk around the town as this kind of white sacred cat. And apparently some kind of large feral white cat had, had come into Berglund at some point in time, and they started worshipping it as the ghost of this skeleton. This is an utterly bizarre piece of Swiss folklore. And I became interested in finding other examples, you know, outside of Egypt where, where sacred cats are well known, other examples of these kind of sacred or angelic cats, and instead what I found, you know, the cat after Egypt went through a very long period of a very long period of travail as far as its reputation was concerned. And what I found were was this entire history, really folkloric history of demonically possessed cats, not angelic cats. That was the rarity. There was a, a large skeleton by the name of St. Maximus in a suit of armor. He was dolled up in a suit of armor and covered in jewels, and he was placed on the high altar of this church. And uh, the full story is that... Um, a gold liquid started puddling between his skeletal legs and it was dripping out of his skeletal crotch. And I know that sounds really weird and, you know, and a little bit insidious, but it, it sounds like something else, but I know what it was. When they would take these skeletons and they would prepare them to be jeweled and put them on an altar, they would cover them over with animal glue as a binding agent to kind because of, these bones were very old and they wanted to keep the bones hard and firm and they wanted to keep them from deteriorating. So the sealant, they covered them with animal glue and clearly they had prepared the animal glue improperly and it was dripping off the skeleton in this golden pool. But because it was gold, they, they thought, you know, well, it's gold in color. It must, it must be a portent of some important lesson that we're about to learn. And around that time, some large white feral cat appeared in the village and, they, and the cat had walked into the church and they tried to chase the cat out of the church and they said it just disappeared into the altar. Well, I know cats. I have three of them. They're really good at hiding and they'll get into small places, and it was probably in there somewhere in the altar, hiding from these these townsfolk that were chasing it, but when they saw it disappear into the altar, they decided it must have come from the skeleton, and because it was white, it was, you know, they said it was the ghost of the skeleton, and they kind of took it as a 
as a as an icon, and this cat lived out the rest of its life in its village in the form, you know, assumed to be the ghost of this skeleton that had become the patron saint of this town, as a kind of you know cat god. <laughs> How it's an incredible biz- story. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. It's really a strange story. And and, and more so than that, I started getting into this, this legend of this cat. I started doing some research, and I even found that, you know, nowadays no one really believes in this, not much, but I even found a 20th century case, a fairly recent case from a couple decades back, back of a girl from, from Birdland who claimed that, you know, she had prayed to this cat. And, you know, because the legend of this cat still exists, and this girl from Bergen said she had prayed to this cat and had cured her from some disease and helped her get a job. So she claims, at least there's one girl out there who claims the cat god still, you know, ministers over Bergen. Wow. But just as a kind of foundation question, just for our listeners, how would you define a demon cat? Well, again, I'm talking about demonically possessed cats, and, and, and I do make that semantic difference, because we're talking about cats that have supposedly been possessed by a demon or, or some other entity. And that sounds so strange to us now. It's because it, the reason that sounds so strange is because we have, through horror films, through literature, and also through academia, which is very homocentric, and it concentrates on, on the human condition so much, we have come to consider uh, demonic possession to be something that is for people. You know, mm-hmm. demons possess people. We don't really think of demons possessing other entities or other things. But in fact, back in the day, it was considered very easy for a demon to possess an animal. Think about it this way. The first defense that you have against something diabolic entering you is the ability to have faith. That's the first wall. That's the first fortress, right? A demon has to get past faith in order to take a Christian or, you know, a human being. An animal doesn't have faith, so it was actually much easier for a demon to take control of an animal and do some weird thing than it was for a demon to take control of a person. When you think about it that way, there's actually a logic to it. We just don't think in terms of demons possessing animals because, as I said, we're so used to films like The Exorcist, and we're so used to academic studies of demonic possession, which only focus on human beings, but demons were thought to be able to take possession of animals, and in particular cats who were thought to be really bad animals at one time. I am a cat owner, and I know Karen is. It, yes. But I'm, I'm really curious about how would I distinguish a possessed cat from a mundane cat? What are, what are the symptoms I would be looking for? Well, you'd be, you know, I get... I get emails from people after I started studying this and I did some, some lectures on it. I get emails from people all the time that will tell me, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, I think my cat's possessed. He's, you know, he, he won't stop pawing at the chair or something. And it's like, buddy, that's cat behavior. Cats do that. A demonically possessed cat will do the exact same kinds of things that a demonically possessed person will do. It might levitate. It might, it might breathe a burst of fire at you. It will speak in tongues. It will do really bad things. We'll do the exact same type of things that we would associate with a demonically possessed person because it's it's the body of a cat that is now controlled by a demon. So it will do the same things that a demonically possessed person will. And there's a really long history of this. You know, um, the most famous demonically possessed cat is actually, and it's a 
supposedly still in Washington, D.C. It's the only demonically possessed cat that has its own Wikipedia page. I've seen it. It's just a stub. It's known as D.C. for District of Columbia or Demon Cat, and it's believed to live in the in the U.S. Capitol building in a crypt that was um, a mausoleum. It was supposed to be a mausoleum that was intended for George Washington, and they never put him there. And uh, anyway, it turned into this storage space that was supposed to be a crypt. And there's supposed to be this demonically possessed cat that lives down there, and there's this whole history of this thing dating back to the mid-19th century. The whole history of this thing, and it, it appears apparently before national tragedies. It kind of presages national tra- tragedies. It starts out as a little black kitten. It grows large in size, and then something terrible happens, and it disappears. Well, I'm just curious now, you mentioned a black cat and, and earlier you were talking about a white cat as being a ghost. Uh, yeah. Is it more common for black cats to be demon cats or does it not really have anything to do with with colour? Yeah, in the popular fancy, of course, right? Because, um, because you know, it, it's this system of alterity that we've, that we've erected simply by being human beings where black represents negativity and white represents virtue. In reality, there's no reason why, if you believe in demonic possession, there's no reason why a demon would have any easier time entering a black cat than a white cat. You know, the thing with black cats, the thing with black cats and the nasty reputation, it 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 predates the witch craze and it goes all the way back to the Greek worship of Hecate. Hecate was the goddess of magic in ancient Greece, and one of Hecate's symbols was a black cat. And so, you know, and that was a, that was a positive or neutral symbol in ancient Greece. But of course, the Christians eventually turned that around. They started associating, associating Hecate with evil witchcraft and tying that to the devil. And then the black cat remained a symbol, and then it also became tied to the devil. So really. Um, it's only easier. It's only easier for a demon to possess a black cat in terms of the symbolism. And in reality, if you were a demon, it would be the same, no matter the color, breed, or type of cat. Right. Thank you. And I'm wondering how a cat speaks in tongues. <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I have I have not heard a cat speaking in tongues. All I know is that if you look at the, the folklore, and if you go into the folklore of cats that have been believed to be possessed. Uh, that's one of the things they might do. They might speak in tongues. I, the cat that, yeah, go I was going to say, I, I don't find that that far-fetched as far as people believing it. Because if you look on YouTube, for example, for uh, animals uh, making funny noises, uh, there's a lot of videos of cats and dogs that seem to be talking. You know, they're, they're, Whether they're intentionally mimicking human speech, I don't know. But it is. Uh, it does sound very much like someone talking. Uh, and then the cats do that thing. The, the cats do a thing. Some cats, not all cats, but... Uh, and we're talking about domesticated cats, but they'll they if they see birds, some cats will like go to the window and and, and make these yeah. strange like whispering noises. It's very interesting. It's yeah, about the cutest thing that cats do actually is that mimicking the bird thing. As if the birds are really that stupid to think, oh, that's just another <laughs> bird, right? Exactly. Um, well, actually, I, I don't know if you've ever gotten into this, but there's actually a whole history of supposed talking dogs and, and or dogs that were trained to talk. So there is there's this whole history, which most of it is probably fictitious, but there is a whole history of supposed talking animals or animals that could communicate in speech. I'm actually uh, Next week, I'm in the UK doing a couple book talks, and afterward, because I'm very kind of obsessed with eventually writing a book on some of this animal weirdness, I'm going to Germany to try to find the grave of a dog by the name of Kurzem, 
uh, Kurwanal, and Kurwanal was a famous, very famous talking dog from the 1930s in Germany who had even been interviewed by psychologists. So there's this entire history of, of animals that really were believed to have the ability to speak. Well, I, I know a lot of people uh, believe in the literal Bible, and there's a story of a talking donkey in the Bible, too. Yeah. Some of them are believed, like the horses that tap things out with their feet, some of them are believed to not communicate in literal speech, but be able to, to spell things out and so forth. But there's this whole history of animals that supposedly understand human speech and can respond. Yeah, I think during World War II, the Nazis actually had a, an animal talking school where they were trying to teach yeah, uh, German shepherds or Alsatians right. how, to, how to speak. And uh, they were taught phrases like, who is Adolf Hitler? And um, give me cakes and things like that. And <laughs> In Weimar, yeah, give me cakes. Is, it's, that's very fascist. In Weimar, um, that's where they did that. And actually, Kermanol was the first, the, one, the dog I was talking about was actually the first talking dog in Weimar, but he wasn't a Nazi talking dog, and it's interesting because uh, after the Nazis came to power, they actually asked him about Hitler, and and he told them he would spell out words with his tail. He said, "No, I prefer Hindenburg be Chancellor." So, so Kurwanal was on the other team. <laughs> so so you, you kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, but I'd like to know more about the the theology or the theological beliefs behind these possessed yeah. feelings. Is this strictly a Western idea, or when we? talking about demonic possession, we're talking about it in, in a very strict kind of Christian way, because other cultures have demons, but, but we don't, you know, they don't consider them the way a Christian might in terms of possession and so forth. Um, it's funny because cats had a very high profile in Egypt, and they really fell down to a very low point afterward. Part of the reason maybe is because they were so associated with Egypt that the Hebrews didn't like them. The Israelites really didn't like cats, and maybe because they associated them with Egyptian religiosity and they had escaped from that. But that really carried over into the Christian world, this kind of distrust for cats. It's only in the last 200 years that cats have really been rehabilitated in the West. In the rest of the world, when you're talking about Asia, the rest of the world, cats never really sank to the low point where anyone would be looking for a connection to a demon, for instance. Um, in Asia, there were cultures like in Thailand, for instance, and in Burma, cats were considered royal, and it, cats still, in, in some contexts, were continued to be considered divine. So, uh, yeah, talking about cats being divine uh, in a, a place like Egypt historically, uh, can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? How how did that uh, manifest? How did they treat cats? Well, you, you, I think uh, you and your listeners are all familiar with Bubastis, uh, the city of Bubastis, and Bast or Bastet, the cat goddess, who was considered a, a daughter of Ra. And so that was, you know, her symbol was the cat, and in the late New Kingdom in Egypt, Bubastis actually did become the royal seat, so it was an actual capital, and, and you know, cats were considered sacred in that town. There's a famous story, um, a Roman encyclopedist, a Roman encyclopedist, Diodorus Siculus, had, had told this story about how, uh, you know, if you accidentally killed a cat. Even if it was by an accident, the penalty was death in, in the city of Bubastis. And uh, some some Roman um, 
politician or diplomat had accidentally run over a cat. And even the Egyptian government was saying, you know, you know you can, this guy is a Roman diplomat. You cannot kill him. And the people who asked us stoned him to death. It, they were, cats were very, very sacred, in particular in the city of Bubastis, because it was dedicated to the cat goddess, daughter, the daughter, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the daughter of Ra. I guess what I'm curious is like the transformation from these sort of pagan uh, roles to being directly tied with witchcraft and other things. And I, and I was wondering, if, does the demonic possession happen after the uh, the cats have been associated with witches? Yeah, it all goes in hand-to-hand, hand-in-hand. You know, demonic possession was not a real big deal in the early Christian world. It kind of comes along later, and it really starts coming along around the same time as the witch hunt starts getting underway. It comes along around the same time. There's this belief that, you know, the devil has this entire army of people and they are witches. And and witchcraft or magic had already been diabolized, you know, by this idea, well, you know, God alone can create a miracle. And so if it doesn't come from God, it's got to come from the devil. And, you know, it, it, then it's, it's something infernal. And so magic had been associated in Christian theology with, with infernal powers for a very long time. As I said, cats had been associated with witchcraft since the ancient world. Cats had also been associated with night since the ancient world. So they were associated with these kind of black things, which then, as I said, kind of became diabolized in Christian theology. Um, There was a theory, in fact, that was very popular in Europe at one time, that the reason that cats were asleep during the day and active at night is because they would go out every night and patrol for the devil. They were they were paid. I don't know what they were paid, how much they were paid, and what they spent it on. That was this kind of folklore about the cat that they were paid to go out at night and keep an eye on things for the devil. So they were very, very associated with him. It was very typical in reports of witches' sabbaths to say that you know the devil would appear either in the guise of a goat or the guise of a cat. And or, you know, of course, witches were also thought to keep black cats as familiars. It was very, very common to associate the black cat with witchcraft. And it really is it really is a kind of nasty syncretism between Christianity and paganism, which had turned magic into something evil and cats, which were emblematic of magic in many cultures, into something evil as well. So I wanted to ask you about familiars. What was a familiar then? It was just a, a witch's companion or? More than that? Yeah, yeah. Familiar, familiar was a, was a companion, and you might have a kind of a clairvoyant or clairaudient relationship with it, but it wasn't necessarily a demon. There's a familiar uh, was, you know, a, a companion that you had this special connection to. A, demon or a demonically possessed entity or a demonically possessed cat, that was something else entirely. And it could do something that, um, it could do something, it could do things that, that a familiar couldn't do. There's a very famous case in England, in Chelmsford, um, Chelmsford, England, which is, I guess, it's a, a bit east of London. In Chelmsford, there was a very famous case of this woman named Agnes who had what was absolutely believed to be a demonically possessed cat by the name of Satan, by the way, which is a very telling name if you're a witch hunter. And she was a witch, and this cat, she apparently she could speak to the cat. This cat did all kinds of things for her. This cat had killed a couple of people for her that actually committed infanticide because she decided she didn't want her cat. And so both she and the cat were put under arrest because this cat was absolutely convinced to be absolutely believed to be not a, not a familiar, but an actual demonically possessed animal. 
Why cats specifically, do you think? And were there cases in your research where you saw other animals being possessed, or was it... Yeah, yeah, of course. Other other animals and other things. It's just cats were something that I kind of focused on because I'm very interested in cat lore and cat mythology personally. I happen to I happen to like cats a lot. And so it was just something I became I became interested in in general. But other animals also, but, but cats in particular, there was this connection. Cats were thought to be a little bit closer to the devil. So cats were kind of the gateway animal. It was easier maybe for a demon to start with a cat and then who knows, move on to a dog and then a person or something. Um, you know, another thing about the cat that really irked Christian theologians was that a cat if you own cats, you'll know that there's a one of the that a cat is so independent that it really doesn't it really doesn't acknowledge your place as master of the home the way a dog might. And it was thought that cats were kind of contrary to providence. That cats didn't accept man's role as master. That cats were kind of in that way. Cats were a kind of natural affront to God because they didn't really accept man's dominance the way other animals did, the way dogs did. So cats also, for that reason, were thought to be a little bit infernal because they didn't seem to accept the natural order of things the way a dog would. You know, it's like if you live in a house with a cat, it's your house and the cat's house. If you live in the house with a dog, it's your house. You're describing my cat very well. That is the personality of the cat, and that was thought to be kind of antithetical to the divine order. I th- I think, uh, you know, as I'm a cat owner, but uh, in, 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 at this point in my life, I've, I've come to this cat relationship uh, with a different approach than I had when I was younger. And when I was younger, I thought my cats loved me. And now that I'm older, I know my cats are not that into me. Well, what it might be, you know, they do don't show emotion in the same way. Um, but, you know, you asked about the possession, and, and, and to make a point, as I said, it wasn't just people, it wasn't just cats, it was even objects could be thought to be possessed. There was a one of the weirdest things I ever got involved in was going down to Chile to this tiny little village called Paranacota that's right near the Bolivian border to try to study some table that was believed to be possessed by something they didn't know what, either a demon or a ghost or something. And this this table had been accused of murder and arrested, and they had it locked up in a room in the church because they said this table would come out at night and it would dance around in the street and it would stop in someone's the front of someone's house and this candelabra would light up, and uh, and then someone in the house would die. And so they had arrested the table and locked it up in a room in the church to prevent it from getting out and dancing around because even the table was thought to be possessed. And there are stories. Um, there is in the Kentucky Historical Museum. There's this thing they call the, the wedding chest or the marriage chest that was a chest that was also thought to be possessed and was it, it was intimated that several people had died because of the, the mechanisms of this chest so even objects could be thought to be possessed that's the worst table dance story i've ever heard what? <laughs> hello i'm paul giamatti and i'm Stephen asma each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was one of the, as I said, it was pretty much the weirdest thing I've ever gotten involved in was, was that table. All this talk of cat behavior is just making me think of uh, Jackson Galaxy. Have you heard of him, Paul, at all? The cat whisperer? No, no I don't know. Oh, he's got a TV show. It's kind of like a Caesar Milan with dogs. Um, but yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he's a cat behaviorist. It's a very interesting show with uh, people who have. Uh, something akin to a demon cat, I think. Is it is it like the it's like the dog whisperer, except every week he fails. What? <laughs> no, he... every week he gets ignored. Probably. Right. Yeah. I, I don't have a TV, so I don't watch television. I don't know. I but you we are actually. I'm I'm putting on I'm putting together a kind of weird occult cat show here in Los Angeles where I live um, in November. And we do have a local psychic who has offered to do a cat seance for us. So I think that'll Ooh. be very interesting. Cool. <laughs> I believe people can contact cats in the real world. <laughs> yeah, that'd be something. Right, it's hard enough to get through to them here. I don't right. know if you're going to get through to them there, but she, she's offered to do this cat seance for us. So I obviously said yes to that. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, good. I, good luck. That should be good TV. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from a from a spiritual perspective, from a and I, I'm not yeah. sure if this is a, a a religious question or just a conceptual question, but how do you deal with a cat that's been possessed by the devil? Do you exercise it, or is there a special way to get rid of it, or, or what do you do? Well, sadly, back in the day, the way they would typically deal with it is just kill the thing. Unfortunately, um, and so a lot of probably innocent cats were killed in that way. Oh. But uh, that would be what you would do. You would try to dispel the demon the way you would uh, the way you would try to dispel a demon from a person. Yeah, this still happens. By the way, there was um, not in the USA, not in Europe, but there was a famous case 
in Africa a couple of years ago of a cat that was crucified, actually, in a horrible cruelty, but the cat was crucified because they absolutely believed that the cat was possessed by a demon. And that was their way of getting rid of the demon, was to crucify the cat. There's even a horror movie that was made in Ghana about demonically possessed cats. It's called Demonic Cat. I've never seen the film. I have talked to horror film historians. No one's ever seen it, but the poster is absolutely fantastic, that I can tell you. Yeah, you'd mentioned that a little earlier about uh, uh, cats and goats being tried for possession in Africa. So that, that is, is it a common thing or is it something that we just occasionally hear a story of? I don't know because I've never, I've never studied that in Africa. I don't think it's that common. I think it's just something that is periodic. I don't know that. In your research, what's been the most interesting demon cat case in your opinion that you've run into? Well, I think um, just as an American, uh, I, uh, I kind of, have a thing for the demonic cat in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, that's, that's our national pride, right? That, that's our demon cat. So uh, I kind of think he's fascinating, and he's been around. Reports of him have been around for about 150 years. No one knows exactly where he came from. He came along around the time of the U.S. Civil War. Uh, the first time he was ever seen was to Abraham Lincoln. He, the first time he ever grew to enormous size and became menacing was right before Lincoln had died. And there, so of course there's a kind of conspiracy theory that uh, maybe this demonic cat was planted in the U S Capitol building by Confederates or some kind of Confederate witch in order to undermine the union. Um, and he's still been around. He was supposedly appeared right before Kennedy was assassinated. I actually made a list that I have somewhere in my home of different Time that cats supposedly had appeared in all the national tragedies or disasters that had happened soon afterward. And the, the last one, not surprisingly, was he was not seen, but uh, supposedly capital workers, maintenance workers, heard this weird kind of meowing, growling sound from that basement where the cats thought to emanate from right before the September 11th attacks. Is he considered to be a Republican or a Demo cat? <laughs> Yeah, I think you got it there. I think he's a demo cat. He's a, he's, well, he's a, he's a conservative demo cat. <laughs> so there are still a lot of superstitions that uh, exist today uh, about cats, things like black cat, cats crossing our paths being bad luck or cats stealing the breath from babies. Would you say that these existing cat superstitions are related to these demonic legends or that they're something different? Cats were... Cats were thought to be able to steal souls. And um, I think that might have something to do with this idea that maybe a cat can kill your infant, you know, because it has happened that maybe a cat lies on the baby's face and the baby suffocates. And I've been told there are reasons for that, you know, that the cat might do that. And of course, it's not because it's evil. Maybe it's it likes the warmth of the baby's breath or something. I know I had heard something about that. But I think that might be one of the reasons that cats were thought to be able to, to steal people's souls. And it's not that cats could steal a soul and take it down to hell, and you had to protect a dead body from cats specifically until it was interred properly. In, especially in Scotland, this was extremely popular, and there was um, a ritual, I believe it was called the Seal Saddlelock, and it was performed to keep what they called the Cat Sea away from the from dead bodies in the Scottish Highlands. And these were supposed to be these large black cats that could emanate sparks. And if they got near a dead body, they would, they would steal the soul by jumping over it and take it all the way down to hell. 
What about uh, protecting yourself from a demon cat? Did, were there any specially prescribed steps that people needed to do in order to save themselves from such things? Or Yeah, and it was a really nasty one. This is Scottish English also. It's UK. It's Britannia. And the, what you would have to do, yeah, this is an almost unspeakable animal brutality, but you had to stay awake for three days. And for three days, you had to keep roasting cats over an open fire. So you had to get, gather together a bunch of cats. And if you would roast them over, you would just keep roasting them until each one expired. And if you did this for three days straight without sleeping, then the devil supposedly would appear to you in the guise of a cat and ask you to stop incinerating his servants and protect you from cat magic and also give you second sight. Wow. A nice bonus. What? <laughs> Yeah, you'd get the bonus out of it. But yeah, unspeakable act of animal cruelty. You had to continue to roast. No, it's it's horrible. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, my mom always told me, if you put salt on a bird's tail, you can catch it. Which, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I would try this. And of course, if you could get close enough to the bird to catch it, you would, you know what I mean? Right, so when your story starts out with the devil will give you superpowers, if you can herd some cats, I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe it wasn't as common as it was disturbing. So. <laughs> yeah, that was that, but that was a famous way of protecting yourself was this burning of the cats for three days straight. That's messed up. Kind of extreme. <laughs> you could you couldn't sleep during that time. You had to stay away for three days and do this constantly. I wonder if anyone actually did. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but uh, this was the method. Where, do you remember where you read that? Don't off the top of my head, um, but it is it is definitely something that I found in a book. Yeah, it is that, definitely something I found in an old book of of cat lore or demonic lore. Um, I don't remember exactly where I got that, but it, it and I found it in a couple different books. It definitely existed, or at least it was thought to exist. Uh, it's just strange. Something you said earlier reminded me of the witch's hammer. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the Malice Malice Karen. Yeah, so when you were talking about the idea that Satan had no power himself, that, you know, that, that, so that, that whole thing. Well, that was, yeah, that was a theological point, and they make that in that book, you know, because anything that the devil does is a glimmer. It's not real. You know, there were these stories, I, I believe it was from the Malleus Maleficarum of, of witches who would steal men's penises, but they wouldn't really be gone. And they would hide them in these, even though they weren't there, they were these phantasms of penises, and they would hide them in nests or something and treat them like birds. It's a very, very strange thing. But the devil had no actual power, and, and it's a theological point that was of importance, because only God can create. The devil cannot create only the creator can create. So anything that comes from an infernal power is a faux miracle. It's a glimmer or it's a phantasm. And everyone believes that it happens, but it can't actually happen because only God can actually create or change substance. Only God can transubstantiate. It's a horrible book full of terrible tortures, but it's also a really, I don't know how else to describe it. It's a biblical nerddom. I mean, it's a really, there's like this really nerdy conversation that starts out the whole thing about this minutia of what's possible and what's not. It's a very interesting read. It is. I actually did my master's thesis on, on depictions of witchcraft in Northern Renaissance arts. I'm, I'm quite familiar with all that stuff. And um, that, that book was the most famous, and it was the first, but it was only one of many.
I'm just amazed that there's so much cat lore out there as well. It's just such a specific topic. Well, I, cats have been around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, know, <laughs> you know, one of the theories is had we not been such bastards to cats at one time, and we really were, you know, they would burn them for fun or burn them as, as rituals, and it was thought to be a good thing. When Queen Elizabeth was crowned, there were a certain number of cats that were actually burned in effigy, and I forget how many that were. It was just important and good things. You know, there's this theory that maybe if we hadn't been such bastards to the cats, we might have saved ourselves from the bubonic plague. So Elizabeth the first, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a, a question that's kind of a sideline thing. Uh, yeah. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but were strays more likely to be demon cats than house cats, or did it not make any difference? <sighs> yeah, you know, that's, that's a more complex question than you realize, because... Um, because they didn't really have house cats the way we do. Pet keeping, as, as we know it, it's really an invention of the 19th century. You know, people have always had animals around, but pets, as we know them, you know, these kind of special companions, this is something that was not all that common for the 19th century. You know, that the relationship that we have them now, with them now, that almost spiritual, familial relationship is something that's really kind of new. Um, people would have cats. One of the things that was suspicious about witches is they had such a close relationship with the cat. Sometimes if you read the literature, kind of like our relationships with cats now, you know, this intimate familial relationship. And that in itself was suspect because someone would have that close relationship with an animal because it wasn't normal at the time to treat an animal as if it were actually a member of the family. There's an interesting papal bull that was issued in, I believe it was 1484. And it said that regarding, you know, this closeness with cats, it said in this bull that all cat worshippers should be pursued as witches or or um, arrested and and treated as witches. Not not witchcraft first, but cats before witches. You know, just that closeness to a cat indicated that you must be involved in witchcraft because it was so suspect. Mm-hmm. A really interesting it was an insult. Evil. Yeah, it was but there, an there's evil. there's a lot of really horrible stuff in the kitty literature. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but this is so fascinating. So it is, yeah. So you're giving lectures this time of the year, or is that what's going on with that as far as I've done a couple well well, okay, I have the more mundane book lectures that my publisher frankly would prefer that I stick with. Um and I'm doing one in Newcastle, but at the same time I'm gonna be passing through London and so uh I arranged through a friend of mine to do a a cat lecture there about the demonically possessed cats on um, October 18th at St. Pancras Old Church. I, I love talking about this stuff and I love doing this lecture because it's, to me, it's a lot of fun and the audience always really enjoys it. Um, and I'm doing, as I said, I'm putting on this kind of occult cat show in Los Angeles on November 5th at the Steve Allen Theater. Um, you know, I don't know to what extent I believe any of it. I mean, I'm the guy who went all the way to Chile to look at a, a demonically possessed table. I don't know how much I believe any of this stuff, but I absolutely fascinated by it. I do know that other people believe or have believed in it, and um, I I think it's an interesting field of study. Skeptics, but yeah, we're interested in it too. (laughs) 
have you had any uh, interesting claims from people who attend your lectures that they've they have a, a demon cat or that they've seen a demon cat before? Well, I had a lady who lives in San Leandro, uh, California, up by Berkeley, contact me when I was in. Um, I had gone up to San Francisco. And I had done a lecture about the demonically possessed cats, and I had wound up getting in the newspaper, and there was this kind of picture of me, and it's like, you know, it's like expert on demonic cats, which I'm really not. I probably know more than anybody else about it, studied it, but I'm not. I'm no expert. I can't fix it, you know, if it's gone wrong in that way. But because of that, you know, because of San Francisco, I got an awful lot of of emails from people about their cats, and there was this one strange email, very compelling email. I got from a woman in San Leandro who believed that um, her her cat had died recently, and she believed that her cat's ghost was living in her frying pan, and that somehow the frying pan had been malfunctioning. The handle kept falling off, and she blamed it on the fact that there had been this that the cat's ghost had taken up residence in the frying pan. She said when she cooked with the frying pan, she would hear this strange hissing sound. So I talked to her for a while and I met with her for a while. In the end, I don't, I don't know that I really believe, I, I don't even know if I believe in ghosts, but you know, uh, I, 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 and if I do, I don't know that I believe this cat's ghost is living in the frying pan. But in the end, I, I kind of got drawn into her drama because the cookware store where she bought the frying pan, um, well, they offered her, okay. They offered her an exchange because she didn't want a broken frying pan. She said the handle, there was something wrong with the handle, and it would come off. And they offered to exchange it if she would return the old frying pan, but she insisted on keeping the old frying pan because she was afraid that her cat was living in it. So as far as the cookware store is concerned, she just wanted another free frying pan, and they refused to give it to her. So I got involved in this strange and negotiation with customer service to try to get this woman a free frying pan. And in the end, I wrote this actually really magnificent letter in which I kind of made her case about the cat. And I got into the right guy's hands who claimed that, well, you know, I do remember when my dog died. I, I did feel a presence in the house. So she actually got another frying pan for her trouble, which I thought was nice, you know, in corporate America, that there is some chance that they'll acknowledge that just maybe the ghost of your cat is in their product and give you a new one. Yeah, that, that's a good story too. Yeah. But although it makes me wonder how to get rid of something like that. I mean, I mean, would you even bother calling a priest if you've already failed with the fryer? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well done. Um, I should warned you about his puns before we started. I don't. I really don't know what a priest would even say, by the way, if you called him and told him that you had a possessed frying pan. I just don't know. Catholic Church doesn't like the idea of possession very much anymore, so if you're if you're claiming it for an inanimate object, they might just hang up on you. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, they pretty rare. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, yeah. Medium rare, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a bad influence. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I'm incorrigible. Uh, but, that no. is a fascinating story, though. It really I wonder, is, how, so she's, I, I wonder how she's doing now and... Um, with this new pan, she or me, she sent me. Well, um, she she mailed me a picture of the cat while it was alive, with a kind of she had put in a little cartoon balloon. It's, the cat's name was Angus, and it said, you know, Angus thanks you, and she had kind of written a little note thanking me because I guess you know the new frying pan is working. She has the old one that the cat lives in, and it's all good. Wow. Well, that's good for her. Oh <laughs> Sounds like there are some issues there. Well, it's. It, well, her husband didn't 
her husband was really skeptical about this. That I must say, her husband didn't like the idea yeah. of his wife going to the cooking water store, telling them that there was a ghost living in the pan. Yeah, yeah but you're married. And you know you make allowance. Well, you love them in spite of it, you know. Right, right. But but you know we see a lot of this, you know, in our skeptical investigations of the paranormal, and and it seems like a lot of it's misascribed agency. Like they see agency in things that aren't there, or maybe they nobody else sees. Yeah, yeah. You know, people have this tendency. They want to jump from point A all the way to point Z without going through all the points in between. It's not that I don't believe in any of this stuff. I'm willing to accept it, but you need to get there through. You need to get there through an acceptable channel, you know. And I think that's what you mean. They like to ascribe agency. I remember because I I'm interested in some of this stuff, and I talk about it in my research, and I get calls from friends. And I remember I, I was talking to this girl once, was telling me, you know, I. I think there's a ghost in my house and I was over at her house and I was like well why do you think there's a ghost here she's like well all this stuff was knocked over last night I don't know what could have happened and I was like well you know there's these bottles of vodka and these empty beer bottles everywhere are you sure you just didn't get drunk and knock things down she's like well yeah I was drunk but I think there's a ghost you know and if you're jumping from point A to point Z let's let's look at it rationally let's work through the possible let's look through all the possibilities and, and then if you really can't answer then let's accept Let's accept the paranormal at that time, but I think you have to work through a series of channels first to get there. Yeah, that's definitely something we try to teach as well. Yeah, there's there's that whole thing they call the argument from ignorance. And uh, if, if we could probably just cancel this show and just say argument from ignorance, and that's 90% of it, maybe more. But it's fun to talk about and fun to hear the lore and fun to hear the way people have constructed explanations over the years. So. Um, or maybe there's demon cats, but you know, I, I, would, I too would need to see some more proof. And I say demon, I mean demon possessed. Exactly. <laughs> Paul, we always like to ask our guests one particular question. We like to end with this yeah. question: What's your favorite monster? Oh, uh, okay. You know what? I'll take the Blemmy. Are you familiar with the Blemmy? Now that sounds extremely familiar. I think I yeah. actually know what that is. I don't. The Blemmy is that thing that has no, it's a person that has no head, but a face in the middle yes, of its chest. Yes, I, yes, I, yes. I love the Blemmy. And, you know, the guy who wrote about that was Walter Raleigh, because Walter Raleigh, in his travel book from Guiana, Walter Raleigh insisted that he had actually seen the Blemmy in Guiana, and his, um, his the, the, the original editions of his book all include an engraving of the Blemmy kind of running through the field. If you've seen an old... If you've seen an old image, an old engraving of the Blemmy, these guys with no heads and the, the faces in the center of the chest running through a field, that's actually from Walter Raleigh, and that's what he claimed that he had seen in Guiana. That's the English you... uh, uh, traveler, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's him. That's uh, yeah. Walter Raleigh, very important guy. It's You know, Walter Raleigh, I don't think Walter Raleigh believed that he had seen the Blemmy. I think Walter Raleigh believed that his audience would only accept his story if he had claimed he had seen monsters, because at that point in time it was part of the rhetoric of Traveler. But the Blemmy has been around since Roman times. The Blemmy has been around since a really long time, for a really long time, because they kind of had this, the Romans and the Greeks both had this theory that, you know, the further away you got from civilization, which was defined as being Roman or Greek, the more barbaric people came, the more 
the more subhuman they became. So it was absolutely believed if you got all the way to someplace like Sumatra, you would actually see things like the Blemmy because they were subhuman because they weren't Roman. And so that had kind of stayed around even in Christian times. And so a lot of explorers would talk about them. And Walter Raleigh, as I said, even included the Blemmy. But I just love those guys. It's, they're such a good image. You know, those guys standing there with no heads and the faces in the center of their chest. So, yeah. Uh, favorite monster, I'll take the Blemmy, I think. I think it's good. We we actually covered the Blimmy uh, on. We did a couple of episodes of Monster Talk on on map monsters. One with Chet Van Duzer, um, mm-hmm. who studies antiquary maps, and one with Asa Mittman from uh, California State University. He's an art historian okay. as well, and you may I don't know if you know his work or whatever, but he I don't. Yeah, he's also done uh, map monsters. So maps and monsters in medieval England, and so yeah, you might want to check those out. The Blemmy were often pictured in the marginalia of maps. Exactly. You know, to kind of to kind of represent things you would find in the exotic part of the world. Yeah. That and potatoes. <laughs> yeah, and well and tobacco. Yeah. Tobacco, yeah. blemmies, potato corn, all these evil things, you know, mm-hmm. you'd find them if you went to America. That's so well, funny. Well that that's a great answer. That's the first time we've heard that one for the favorite monster that's question. That's true. That's true. It's it's excellent. So well <laughs> thank you very much. What I'll do is uh I'll put you uh I'll put the links uh and information for your upcoming talks in London and in Los Angeles. We have a lot of listeners in California and a lot of listeners in England. So uh hopefully that'll get you some additional that. butts and seats. <laughs> great. Thank you very much, guys. Well thanks for being on Monster Talk. We appreciate it. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard Dr. Karen Stolzno and me interview Dr. Paul Kudnaris about demonic cat possession. On October 16th and October 18th, Dr. Kudnaris will be giving lectures in London on his research. On the 16th, he'll be covering art and death, and on the 18th, he'll be discussing demonically possessed cats. If you're able to attend, he is an art historian, and many of his stories have images that will add to the presentation. He also has an upcoming presentation in November in Los Angeles. Check our show notes at monstertalk.org for more information. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed in this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If all goes well, we'll have a fascinating interview next episode that combines vampires and poltergeists. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to help this show, please share it with a friend who likes monsters. Monster Talk exists because I believe you can love monsters and folklore, but not have to treat the topics uncritically. I'm recording this on October 13th, my birthday. Want to give me a birthday present? Just give our show a review on iTunes. It's free, and it really helps new people find the show. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit Skeptic.com to sign up. Forceps. Some bomb scissors. Ten blade scalpel. Ten blade. Sponge stick. Give me a little sweat on my upper lip. Okay, remove sweat. <laughs> 